Yes, I was approached by um, Bub's son Tapeta and the family in general uh, to come and visit their dad. <laughs> and uh, I just happened to live up the road from um, from uh, Uncle Bub. Oh, yeah. And so I'll go up there for a a, uh, a visit, and there's a chair, one chair in the middle of the room, and, and the family is sitting around the side of the room, and I'm, and I'm going, oh, this looks like an ambush. <laughs> <laughs> and basically they tunneled uh, to me to ask me if I would write, uh, you know, Bub and Nam's story. Um, and... Uh, well, Bub was uh, sitting right in front of me. I, uh, there's no way I could say uh, no, really. Mm. <laughs> and so that that was the beginning of a conversation in, in a period of time over two years of talking with Bub and talking with the family in general um, to, you know, put together the story. Um, so in terms of pressure, I would say there was a bit of a, pre- a bit of pressure, <laughs> uh, especially leading up right to publishing and printing of the book because the family wanted it. We had a specific day that we wanted to um, launch it. And so there was a, a big uh, ramp up of pressure <laughs> yeah. to get it out on the right day, you know. It's a 328-page book, right? So you're talking two years. How did how does it work, Brad? Were you sitting there with a tape recorder and then were you getting it transcribed or was everything said chronologically to you? Um it wasn't spoken chronologically. Uh, first, what I try to do is try to find a, a, a bit of a summary of the story. You know, where does it begin and when does it, where does it end and what are the points in the middle? And then um, so that I can kind of group the stories into those chronological kind of chapters. And uh, it certainly wasn't chronologically spoken. <laughs> it was... It was just what subjects Bub was able to share about at the time, and then I, all I had to do is place them in the right chapter and and word them. But um, it didn't, um, I suppose, because I was a little bit maybe ignorant of the bigger story and and really the the how huge amount of work they had done in their lives from even within, within two years. There's no way I could have actually recorded it. Um, so it was really, I didn't use tape, I tried to use tape recorders, but in the end I found that a hindrance to me um, because it just meant if I'm interviewing someone for three hours, then I have to go back again over the three hours. Whereas I I actually wrote, uh, I like to write, handwrite every all my notes, so I just had notebook after notebook after notebook because I can get to pages quickly. And uh, so the way I wrote it, I wrote it, put all the stories in place, um, it's lucky the family were just up the road from me, so I could either just ring someone or go up the road and check the details. Um, I had to research the newspapers and uh, research uh, online material just to confirm uh, what the family were talking about. Um, in some ways, they'd forgotten certain details, especially of Bub, Bub's uh, life with Nan in the early days. And Nan wasn't there to actually share, um, so I had to double check a lot of things uh, either through newspapers or um, through family uh, discussions with the wider family. Um, so <clears throat> that was the process that I kind of used was just gathering the stories as they came, putting them into the right place. I used notebooks and hand wrote everything myself, 
Um, the, the family had a lot of records already, which was great. They had a lot of musical records and uh, um, other written materials that they had kept for years and years, which was really great. So out of the conglomerate of all of that, we were able to put together the story. <laughs> How many notebooks are we talking here, Brad? Oh, I've got about 1,200-page 12, notebooks. Um, that, uh, And if I ran out of a notebook, I'm using bits of paper from here. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I just kept them all in a box together. And um, what we did after I wrote the manuscript was hand it back to the family so that they could go through it. So I think the way they did it, they had each, a lot of members of the family had a chapter to go through to double-check uh, the, the the ideas, and that's what actually happened. The other thing the family had to check was, was Bub's voice. Because I wrote it as if it's Bub's voice talking, We made we had to make sure that it was in his vernacular of the way he spoke, and uh, and so they were always making sure that no, he wouldn't say it like this. This is how he'd say it, you know. So it was a, it was, to me, it was a real collaboration. Was it advantageous that you were able to call it all Ethereal Maori and Pakia? Yes, um, I don't think if uh, if you could only speak English, you would probably only be able to reach partway into their lives so having a um, you know a good understanding of the real but also of of waiata and, and motetea which is something I've always had a heart for um, I could easily ask him questions or draw above out on uh, on issues and on the types of waiata and what that proverb is we, we were able to talk about because I'm a great believer in some ways that as a journalist or as someone going to write a story like this, you almost have to have the same amount of knowledge. As the person you. that you're talking to. Yeah, yeah, to be able to talk at their level. Otherwise, you're going to miss a lot of things. Or otherwise, you can only go so far in the corridor. Eh? Yeah, that's right. And they and they pick that up. Mm. And so. Um, and they accommodate. <laughs> hey, they accommodate you. Yes. Yeah, because it's like they're almost waiting for you to ask the questions, but yep. they'll only answer the questions that you ask. Yes. <laughs> so you have to make sure that you're asking yep. the right questions. The right question. Yeah. And you have to, yeah, so you have to really know your stuff. I've never really been a kapahaka person in a sense, although I, I, I like to compose my own waiata at home as a, as a, um, as a secret uh, um, as a hobby, I suppose, to keep that tradition alive in our my own family. Mm-hmm. Um, so, getting to understand that whole Kapahaka world um, was fantastic, actually. And it was good to speak with the family; their whole lives have been Kapahaka. So, understanding how that world, uh, how they've been brought up in that world, and the changes in that world, the additions to those worlds, you know, um, was a really good glimpse into. Uh, the world of Kapahaka. Um, probably the main thing I would say that was a, a hindrance for me um, as a re- recording the story was uh, Bub became ill uh, with Parkinson's disease, so that hindered how much he could actually share. And so the voice, his voice had to become um, 
his family's voice. And the good thing about that, uh, Bub's family is that they all know the same story. Oh, yeah. Uh, and, and so as long as there's three voices that could tell that story, because I'd have to go, is that true? Is that what happened? They'd all go, yes, that's what happened. And Bub would confirm it. Um, and so it, it was a conversation not only with just Bub, but actually with the whole family, which was a bit of a safeguard from my point of view, um, so that I'm not writing beyond the family, um, all those sorts of things. You know what I found um, quite mind-blowing in a way was just how open he was. Yes. You know, and uh, so the stories he shared from when he was a young man growing up on Waiweka to when he was courting his wahine. <laughs> and just the whole, you know, openness of... He felt that he wasn't good enough for her. I mean, it was very um, humble. Yes. And throughout the throughout the story, you get a sense of that humility. Eh? It's it's a constant. Mm. Yeah. Well, they, the family all knew that because that's how he was. You know, all his life towards Nan. So they, you know, that and that was something that they always lived by is humility, and that the way their father was, you know. And so they, they all knew the stories, um, and they really wanted those stories put in uh, to the story, to the book, because that's re- those are the things that drove and motivated the way they ran uh, their kapahaka teams. And uh, I, I would say the thing that I enjoyed most about writing Bub's story was the story where he, he was not picked for his uh, kapahaka team as a boy. Oh, yeah. And, and how that put him off kapaka. Yeah, that put him off doing <laughs> a haka or any kind of Māori thing like that all his life. He mm. really did not want to go there because it was painful for him. To, that point of rejection was painful to him. So my whole, when he told me that story, I'm going, well, how did you become what you became then? How did you overcome that to become what you became as a great kapahaka um you know, stalwart, you know, the pukenga ne o te nao, you know, and so my search in writing was always about finding how he was able to overcome obstacles in his life and um, really, because he just wanted to be a sportsman and uh, play tennis yeah. <laughs> and rugby. That was his life, actually. Um, but when he fell in love and he knew this woman was the one he wanted to be with, she was came from a big kapahaka family, and she said, well, um, I'll come and watch you do sport if you come and watch me do kapahaka. And, uh, and slowly he was enticed into that world. And the elders saw something in him um, that they chose him in the end. And, um, and I just kind of see, well, the elders see potential in someone who, like himself, was very shy wasn't part of their lineage. <laughs> That's right, and he was, he was a hunanga. Yeah, yeah, and all those sorts of things, but yet they they chose him. And um, and I, I kind of honour that, that he stood up to live in that decision. And uh, him and Nan were very close um, to, you know, all the years. Um, for And the thing that I liked really... One of the other reasons I wanted to tell the story is because they used kapahaka not just for entertainment's sake, 
they used kapahaka as the vehicle to teach family values, and they used kapahaka to teach identity. And at a time where that wasn't necessarily um, something that was encouraged within New Zealand, eh? No. Well, here when he came here to Auckland, um, you know there were so many people, you know relations that lived here, but they'd lost something of family and they'd lost something of identity. And that was around about the nineteen the eighties. 1981, in that period of time, and uh, he he came, and um, people were just drawn back to them. Were drawn to them, you know, families that were from Gisborne were drawn to them when they started to raise a group. And in the book, he says, uh, Bub said they actually came to Auckland to retire. They didn't want to do it anymore. Um, but I think he saw something that he needed to continue to do. And, and something that was needed. Something that was needed, but... And I think he took Kapahaka, his brand of Kapahaka, to greater heights musically. Um, he wasn't scared to mix with other forms of music, like like choral singing, <laughs> yeah. you know, uh, and he wanted to train the younger people in all sorts of things, from drama to different forms of music, um, to expand their worldview, you know, and so to me, Bub and Nan were visionaries, really, um, for the future of Kapahaka, of that Haka world. As much as there's a traditional side of things, but he also wanted to expand it into the wider world scene, you know. Yeah, it seems like they've um, they've never been constrained. You know how sometimes within Te Ao Māori we can put so many restrictions upon ourselves. Yes. You know, don't do this, can't do this, this is why you can't do this, you know, tamir, tamir, tamir. And then they just, they never seem constrained. No, uh, but I think knowing knowing the traditional stuff and how to move within it to break constraints is the trick. And and that's with Bub and them, because the Bub did say to me that, you know, with that song... Um, Wahine Purotu, and the men actually sat sat on the ground before the women, and their backs were to the crowd. And he knew when they were when they were practicing the swata, the actions that that would get a lot of people's uh, backs up. up because it wasn't traditional. Um, but he always spoke to other elders, including Bill Kerekere and different ones, about ideas. This is what we're going to do. What do you reckon? And then they'd they talk about things, and uh, and uh, Bill would always say, "Have a go, mate. <laughs> Have a go." And but at least there's a team of them that knew what they were trying to achieve. And if anyone stood up against it, then uh, they would say, well, "No, you know, there would be an answer." No, we we did it because of this, and we understood. We they worked out the traditional aspects of why we're doing this, so that they always had an answer. And and uh, to me, that's very smart thinking. Um, and they just moved beyond traditional to to find, uh, to push the barriers, really. That's what Bub was all about. He always wanted to do that, you know. But is it also the benefit, Brad, of having a um, strong grounding in tikana Māori? Yes, he, he, I don't, I think uh, Bub and Nan have had a very strong uh, upbringing in uh, the Māori world and in tikanga Māori, so they they knew how far they could push things, 
they knew uh, without that, I don't think they would have um, been able to go as far as they could have. You know, like I always respect Bub because he always refers back to uh, the old people at Waiweka who taught him lots of things, that he went and asked him questions. He wasn't scared to ask him questions, you know? Which brings me to one of the favourite stories that was relayed in the book about how um, there was that Kloa Nākohu Pera. Oh, yes. And he used to go, I love it, how he used to go and just, you know, lean against the door and look in on his whare, and he had all those things on his um, yes. on his wall. Yes. And then Napo asked him, who looks after these things? Kloa replied, Marato anoe tiaki. You know, they look after themselves. It's such a, um, I just cracked up when I read that because I could hear my old people in that story. <laughs> yeah, oh, there were some funny stories in there and some serious stories, like Bub's story. I said to him, when did you first do the wedo? And he said he did this wedo at uh, this uh, Ringatu Hui, but he forgot to take a, the tucky with him. So he went in the book, the, he went and ripped a bit of bark off this tree. <laughs> substitute for a dance. <laughs> and I'm going, oh, what happened? He says, oh, well, I put it down and then I go back back to the group uh, singing away there. Next minute, his whole body just went into paralysis and he couldn't move. And um, and so they carry him up the road to uh, the old man uh, Adams uh, and uh, was a tohunga who was blind and yelled out to him, they're carrying him bub down the street the total dead weight. You know, and I just thought, man, this is an amazing story, you know, that he, the old man yelled out to him, is that you, Bub Wehi? <laughs> and in my Bub's mind, he said to me, man, I knew, oh, I'd done something wrong. Mm. But he didn't know what it was he'd done wrong. And then when the old, he brought the uh, Bub in, they laid him on the ground, and the old man walked all over him and prayed, got his Bible out, <laughs> and said, oh, you know, um, the tree that you took that bark from, it was uh, a burial tree, you know, and so there was tapu, and so he was able to lift that off Bub, and and he could feel pins and needles as blood came back to his body parts, the mm. extremities of his body parts, you know. But he learned something out of that story, you know, and so I, that's my passion, I suppose, in storytelling is finding those pearls, those tonga corridor that can actually. Um, teach the next generation uh, how to move in this area. You know, the Māori world is a very spiritual world, and you're not just doing things for entertainment's sake. You know, no. There are things you have to be very careful. So Bub was, he had to learn all those things as well, you know, And but he was close to old Nākuhu Pera who taught him those things, and um, because you need, you need a kaumātua. You know, even in my writing, I have a couple of kaumātua I always go to. I mix with all the time so that I can ask them, what do you think about this? Or how should I do this? You know, so that you don't go in blind. And Bub was always someone like that. Both Bub and Nan, they always made sure they had kaumātua people around them who they could advise them on things um, when they were going overseas or how the group should run or just things to do with life, you know. Because their life was kapahaka, it wasn't just about performing. That was actually their life, their everyday life. So um, I think it's a fantastic story and something that uh, every Māori home 
what our New Zealanders' home should have for Christmas this year. Ko kapu te rangi te maunga, ko te whare o tōroa, te rohe, ko nga te hokapu te hapu, ko Brad Harmi tēnei e mihia tēnei.